Would you turn with me this morning to Psalm 81? A Psalm of Asaph today will be our text, as today is our Psalm Sunday. This morning's Psalm comes almost as a pair with Psalm 80, and I'll seek to make that case today, drawing to our attention some interesting and significant parallels between the two. Both share the same author, Asaph, who is gifted as a musician likely, certainly as a psalmist, and as he was receiving the word of God, he wrote as a prophet, declaring in Psalm 81, the perspective of heaven to earth. The title of this morning's message, therefore, is Heaven's Voice Pleading. We hear the voice of heaven, our Lord God Almighty, Yahweh himself, pleading from glory to his people that they may pay attention to his word, repent, change accordingly, repair to the standard of his inarguable truth. The aim of this morning's message is to tune our ears, therefore, to the voice of God himself in his prophetic word. May the proclamation of Psalm 81 this morning tune our ears, his people this day, to the voice of God himself in his prophetic word. With your Bible open to Psalm 81, would you stand with me out of reverence and fear for God's holy word this morning and listen as the word of God is proclaimed in our ears today. Psalm 81 comes to us under the title, To the Choir Master, According to the Giddeth of Asaph. Here we have the word of God, verse 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went over the land of, out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. Verse 6, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your baskets were freed from the, your, your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. Verse 16. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Rewinding one psalm, we note that Asaph opens Psalm 80 with an event signaled by trumpets. Psalm 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherds of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Turn with me, if you would, while I'm reading, uh, recalling these few verses to Numbers chapter 10. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. We note in Psalm 80, verse 2, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, 
stir up your might and come to save us. We remarked in the historical context of Psalm 80, last message from the Psalms, that this reference to the enthroning of Christ or the Lord himself upon the cherubim is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which had a place in the procession, the Exodus procession of the people of God. If you look in Numbers, you will see in other places which tribes were called to go forth in what order when they broke camp and proceeded on their journey to the promised land. And you'll note in the center of the procession, the Ark of the Covenant was carried by the priests, the Levites would attend it, and of course, God himself was enthroned upon the cherubim, there upon the Ark of the Covenant, but immediately following them were Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, these tribes. Thus, they had the privileged place of first to follow the presence of the Lord in this procession. Thus, we see Asaph drawing on a picture from the Old Testament to illustrate the shepherding heart of God for his people. O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who went before him enthroned upon the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant, leading your people sovereignly to the promised land, remind us of your presence this day. And so the text continues. Now, while the people were going out and following the ark, this instruction, these instructions would be attended by the blowing of the trumpet. We note this also in the book of Numbers this morning. Again, this is Numbers 10 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets of hammered work, you shall make them. And you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. When you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown wherever they set out. But the assembly is to be gathered together. You shall blow a long blast but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests shall blow the trumpets. The trumpet shall be to you for a perpetual statute through your generations. And it goes on. So the trumpets had symbolic significance to the people of Israel. Asaph recalls two occasions to our attention that were attended by trumpets. Psalm 80 would be the exodus, the procession, signaled by trumpets where Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh would begin to follow the tribe of Levi and the Ark of the Covenant again toward the promised land. This morning, we see another event signaled by trumpets in our psalm, Psalm 81. We see this message in verse 3, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. Here again is a moment in the order of Hebrew culture as God had designed, where trumpets were to signal to them something important. Asaph thus continues this framework of important events signaled by trumpets in Psalm 81. And again, again, this event is important to understanding the rest of his psalm. Here we recall also Numbers 29, as Asaph finds the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles or booze, an appropriate one to perhaps write his psalm to attend those services, or certainly to commemorate them. So we have the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, and trumpets in mind here. If Psalm 81 was written to attend these events, it would be featured in the worship of the people frequently. And of this note, Alexander Pyrie writes, quote, This day, speaking of the Feast of Trumpets, was a joyful festival, returning every month, 
But the first day of the seventh month was most solemn of the whole, being not only the first moon, but of the civil year. This was called the Feast of Trumpets. This joy was a memorial of the joy of creation, of the joy of the giving of the law. It also pre-indicated the blowing of the gospel trumpets after the dark, the covered period of the death of Christ. When the form of the church changed and the year of the redeemed began, and finally it prefigured the last day when the trumpet of God shall sound and the dead shall be raised. So again, an introduction to our text today, given the significance of these moments in the nation's consciousness, Asaph employs them as a call to worship and a call to repentance. Psalm 80 is a priestly cry. It's a cry to heaven on behalf of the people. You remember the cry from Psalm 80, restore us again, verse 7, restore us. Turn again, O Lord of hosts, verse 14. Finally, restore us, verse 19. A cry, a plea from the people to God. Psalm 81 reverses this direction, and it's a prophetic cry. Asaph takes up the role of priest, as it were, in this psalm, and the cry now comes from heaven on behalf of Yahweh himself. It is heaven's voice pleading with the people. And the cry that we hear time and again in this psalm is, Hear, O my people, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. So I think we can find perhaps five things under this heading to focus our attention on from Psalm 81 this morning. The heading is, The God of Jacob calls his people. In Psalm 81, we hear heaven's voice pleading. So what does the call of the God of Jacob to his people sound like? First of all, it sounds like, verses 1 through 4, a call to worship. Secondly, the voice of Jacob pleading from heaven, calling to his people, sounds like a message to recount your deliverance. Thirdly, to obey my law. Fourthly, to weigh the consequences. And fifthly, to behold my promises. And that is a rough outline of Psalm 81 today. Training our ears, tuning our ears to hear the voice of the God of Jacob himself in his prophetic word, calling, pleading with his people. First of all, a call to worship. Verses 1 through 4 fits this structure well. As Asaph, the preeminent psalmist, the leader of God's people in his calling, to assemble them, to offer praises to the Almighty. He says, verse 1, sing aloud to God our strength. It's a commandment, a directive. It's a call to assembly. It's an announcement. It's a herald. It's a proclamation to go out and to gather in those who have a common goal, to exalt, to praise, to glorify, and to worship the Lord with the synergy of their voices and hearts mixed together in a way that those off by themselves could never fully realize. There is a corporate expression and call to the worship of our God all through history, and we participate in it even today. And to this call, we have Asaph saying, sing aloud to God our strength. They're echoing, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. He gives specific ways to do this. Verse two, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, 
at the full moon on our feast day. And then verse 4, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. We see in this call to worship instruments employed. Specifically, a song is offered to the Lord. Raise a song. Join your voices in sweet melody to the Lord. Sound more than this, a tambourine and timbrel, an instrument prepared and purposed for glorifying the Lord in this ensemble. Thirdly, offer to the Lord sweet lyre, likely a stringed instrument or something of a, perhaps a flute or something like that. We're not exactly sure what these instruments were. Suffice it to say, there is a wide array of glorious orchestration that the psalmist assembles, calls together to offer to the Lord the praises that he deserves. And fourthly, harp. Song, tambourine, lyre, and harp. And perhaps we can add a fifth. Blow the trumpet at the new moon. Instruments are employed to offer to the Lord this worship. It says, in, or this indicates to us that there is a presentation in worship of ourselves. First of all, there is in the call to worship, a call to assembly. Gather together. Communion with one another. Join at the central location of God's purpose and in this at this time, it was a specific geographic location, either Zion or surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. Present yourselves there. Show yourselves. Join the roll call, roll call of those who appreciate the glorious presence of God among you and join with them praises for the same. Secondly, they were to present not just themselves, but their efforts. They were to adjust their schedule. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Do all your work on the other six. Keep specific, set apart, sanctified, and sacred these moments, this day, to offer as a sweet incense to the Lord your praise. So their efforts were to be constructed around this command. In the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day, and in this call to worship, to join the assembly to offer the Lord his praise. Thirdly, they were to summon their affections. That is, remember the great privilege and appreciate with thankfulness of heart what God has done to spare you, to save you, to call you out of deliverance under Pharaoh's heavy hand into this glorious existence of God's special chosen people, set apart as a light to the nations, promised your own place of habitation, a land flowing with milk and honey, yea, even honey from rocks themselves. We see figuratively pictured at the end of the psalm. Now more than this, they were also to offer to the Lord their cultural expressions. Present yourselves, your efforts, your affections, uh, and your cultural expressions. So skilled instrument, uh, skilled musicians were to bring their instruments and their abilities before the Lord and to play to Him this offering of praise. More than this, skilled craftsmen were to assemble their best work and to present it in the construction of the tabernacle, later the temple we see as well. Holy Spirit-inspired cultural expressions of the skills that God had given man to take dominion over, to, over his earth were to be presented in the context of worship before the Lord. Also, their offerings were to be brought in the context of the Old Testament and the Feast of Trumpets. It was immediately followed by the offerings that would attend the Day of Atonement. More than this, their creative pursuits, in fact, we could say in summary, all of their life 
was to be centered around this call to worship. Even the encampment in the book of Numbers was centered on the tabernacle. Tribes to the east, west, north, and south were centered on this cultural kingpin or hub of their very existence to remember, to proclaim, and to worship the Lord for their great salvation. This is the call to worship, the plea from God himself, the God of Jacob to his people through his servant Asaph, special instructions to assemble and to offer the Lord your praise. Secondly, we find the occasion is significant, as we've briefly mentioned already, the significance of the Feast of Trumpets. Trumpets themselves are associated with many things in Scripture, but among them we are mindful of the majesty and omnipotence of our God. Trumpets were sounded on Sinai when God delivered in a firestorm of His magnificent power to judge His holy law. The people were shaking in their boots as a literal earthquake shook the mountain and lightning struck and Moses received from the very finger of God the Ten Commandments into the hands of the prophet to deliver through him to the people. And at this time, that voice that attended the delivery of God's holy word, sovereignly written by his very finger, was that of a trumpet blast that would deafen the ears of the onlookers. The trumpets in Scripture also signal the Exodus procession, as we uh, remarked, when God's people were called forth unto battle, there would be the sound of trumpet. When victory in war was uh, signaled, the trumpets would blast. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon summoned the musicians as well, and they blasted the trumpets. You remember the fall of the uh, walls of Jericho? It happened after a trumpet blast. The kings were anointed, attended with this kind of song and celebration and heralding as the good news of a new king over them was brought to the ears through the voice of the trumpet. The giving of the law, the return of the ark from Obed-Edom, cosmic judgment, the day of atonement, all through scripture. The occasion of trumpets is a signal to take seriously the sovereign work of our God. Remember that he is powerful and he is majestic. Do not forget. Attention, attention, focus on the Lord. Do not be distracted by the trappings of this earth, but that, let that trumpet blast of God's word arrest your attention and redirect your focus on the things that truly matter. Thirdly, we have a picture in this introduction of a native tongue and a foreign language. If you, if, if you will, in, in verse 4, we see that these things, this call to worship and these feasts were commanded as a statute for Israel, a rule for the God of Jacob. It says in verse 5, he made it a decree in Joseph when he went over the land of Egypt. And now I want you to notice in this song a poetic note of discord. I hear a language I had not known. It's almost like this call to worship is interrupted by something that doesn't fit. What is this? I hear a language I had not known. It's meant to contrast this unity and purpose that is pictured in the call to worship with the people's hearts at this time. It's as if they had been co-opted by a different worldview, a different idea. It was as if the Tower of Babel, judgment, had visited them, and the people were speaking, understanding, and appreciating a different language entirely. Instead of the language of unified glory to the Lord offered to him in the worship that he had prescribed, the people 
we're more interested and infatuated and influenced by, in certain times of their apostasy, other languages, if you will. The voices of other cultures, other gods, other identities, other ways of organizing themselves, other ways of governing themselves. I hear a language, Asaph says, I had not known. Something is wrong. There's discord in the camp. We are not offering to the Lord with unified voice the praise that he deserves. Worship versus the foreign language of apostasy. A note of discord is introduced to illustrate contrary identity of the people now adopting the morals, values, uh, and the gods of cultures, the foreign cultures that were foreign to the truth, muddling their vision and co-opting their desires, their affections. And so we have the second call. That was the call to worship. But the God of Jacob calls to his people, pleading from heaven to earth a second time. And his call is to recount their deliverance, verses 5 through 7. So in light of this problem in the camp, we hear these words in verse 6. I receive your shoulder. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. The God of Jacob calls to his people, worship me. And secondly, he calls to his people, recount your deliverance. Deliverance you are only proving in these moments of your unfaithfulness that are absolutely undeserved. Moments of deliverance where God graciously heard your cry and intervened in your salvation, raising up a deliverer, Moses, to bring the word of God to his people and to create a way, even across the Red Sea, parting the waters by his sovereign hand into his place of, prep of preparation for his people, a place set apart for their dwelling unto his glory. Recount your deliverance. Notice the request was answered and this request was one made in distress. The request was that they would be freed from the burden of slavery in Egypt, as we see it poetically expounded in verse 6. But in verse 7, it tells us the circumstances plaguing the soul of the Israelites at this time. In distress you called, and I delivered you. Notice, there was a motivation for the people and their cry for deliverance. They were distressed. They were oppressed. They felt the weight of their bondage acutely. They felt it on the torn backs when the slave drivers would whip them because they weren't moving fast enough. They felt it in the sore necks as even archaeology testified to heavy baskets upon their back and then straps over their head full of likely bricks, mortar, things necessary for the building of the wonders of ancient Egypt. They felt the oppression in the meager provisions they had, just the little bit of sustenance in the small hut to live in, and the lack, absolute lack, of independence and freedom under the slave-driving regime. And so they cried out to the Lord in their distress, and He heard them. This motivation of distress moved them to beseech the Lord that He in His sufficiency would answer their prayers. Have you ever heard of the idea, the concept of a jailhouse prayer? What is a jailhouse prayer? My dad does a lot of ministry behind bars, and he's very familiar with this reality. 
Often those who are behind bars, who are suffering on account of what they've done, I'm sure there's even those who have been unjustly accused, when they feel the weight of their distress, their bondage in prison, even in our state, or in our nation today, they will often cry out to the Lord, motivated by their distress. And it seems for a time their heart is softened to the reality of the judgment they deserve, and they come to terms, perhaps, apparently more readily with their sin. But oftentimes there is a test, almost invariably in every case, later on down the line. You could compare it perhaps to the testing of the waters of Meribah in verse 7. What happens when the jail bars open and they're free? Will we find that the motivation to follow the Lord was restricted to their distress? Or will we find that they continue to faithfully serve the Lord, having earned their freedom? Well, the children of Israel were no strangers to this idea of jailhouse prayer. They were motivated in their distress to beseech the Lord. But Asaph's call to worship, after they had earned their freedom, after they had uh, 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 partaken in their freedom, after the Lord had brought them out, Asaph's call to worship often fell on dead ears. Why? Because when they were surrounded by the grapes and the land flowing with milk and honey, relative peace and provision, prosperity, they forgot their Lord. They needed at this time to recount their deliverance. Do not forget that the Lord answering their prayer was pure grace, undeserved, and therefore it deserved a lifestyle of worship, even unto glory, worship the Lord for what he has done. The Lord had divinely and unmistakably intervened on their behalf. They were to recount, therefore, his exodus exploits, delivering them from bondage. We've covered them at length in recent weeks. I'd encourage you to go back over them again. Read in the book of Exodus the mountains that God moved to make a way straight for his people through the wilderness and recount your own deliverance. Has God not moved mountains in your life? Was your sin that condemned you to hell not sufficient reason upon its satisfaction in the blood of Christ to praise the Lord for eternity? How are you doing at the waters of Meribah? Have you grown content, too content with your salvation? such that you are less likely to hear the call to worship the Lord for your great salvation, being delivered from your sins, being satisfied before the Lord, reconciled in his presence at the cost of the blood of his son. Ask the Lord how you are doing. And if you find you need to recount your deliverance, use even these moments in this message and moments like these in worship, gathered with his people, moments in prayer and in study of his holy word to do so. Recount your deliverance. This testing at the waters of Meribah was a sincerity test of sorts. It showed that the people were fair weather, or perhaps you could say foul weather, faithful followers. Foul weather followers. It's hard to say. When the weather was foul, they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. When the weather was fair, they trusted something else. Later, we'll see in the course of our text that they were more likely under relative peace and provision to abide by their own counsel. Verse 12, follow their own counsel rather than the word and law of God. Thirdly, this morning, the God of Jacob calls to his people. Heaven's voice is pleading, pleading with a call to worship, a call to recount your deliverance 
And thirdly, a call, obey my law. Verses 8 through 10. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Listen to the trumpet of my voice echoing in your ears from Sinai itself. I will admonish you. I will give you warning, blind man, when you reach the edge of the cliff so you don't topple to your doom. An illustration of the law of God, providing for our health and benefit the necessary prescription for godliness, well-ordered life, even safety, relative peace, and the Lord's structure and order to be a reality, redeemed in our heart, soul, and society. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. Verse 9, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. The land of Egypt, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Turn with me to Exodus 20. Do these words sound familiar? They will as we read Exodus 1 through 20, 1 through 6, I trust. Listen, here we have the preamble to the Ten Commandments and the first couple of instructions, imperatives, commands from the Lord. These were the ones written by the finger of God on Sinai. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So you notice, there is a call to recount their deliverance. That's the preamble. Now we have the first commandment. You know it. Commandment number one. Children, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Does anyone know it? What's the first commandment? Father, father, mother? Close. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Good job, Judah. In Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, Another child in here, no commandment number two. Commandment number two. That's correct, Israel. Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. Verse four says it this way. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Listen, verse five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I have answered, pausing there, I've answered your cry in distress, but know that I will not tolerate any other counselors, any other gods. If you want to ascribe, pretend that your deliverance was due to Baal, Asherah, Dagon, Nishrach, some of these other pagan deities that you're tempted by, by your neighbors who have, you know, big, impressive cities, and you think perhaps it's because they worship another God, know that I am jealous. The day that your heart drifts to those deities, to those other explanations for your salvation, to those other sources of confidence, anything besides my word and my counsel alone, know that I am jealous and therefore there are consequences. Verse six, but showing steadfast love. Well, let's rewind a little. I am a jealous God, he says again, verse 5b, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But notice conversely, the full scope of God's attributes. Kids have been studying the scope of God's attributes in Sunday uh, class lately. Notice on the other hand, we we have jealousy on the one hand, but notice what we have on the other, verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Obey my law. In Psalm 81, it is to these words 
that Asaph, speaking as a prophet, behalf of God to the people, pleads with the voice of heaven to the wayward, hear, O my people, while I admonish you. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. Note that this is a gracious plea. This is certainly a second chance, if you will, that is undeserved. Yet the Lord over and again, demonstrating his long suffering and indeed his steadfast love, calls his people's attention through the trumpet of his holy word to obey his law. These are his preeminent commands to which he refers in Psalm 81. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make unto me no graven images. That's uh, call number three. The God of Jacob calls to his people. We hear heaven's voice pleading, a call to worship, a call to recount your deliverance, a call to obey my law, and now number four, a call to weigh the consequences. Verses 11 and 12. But my people, Asaph says, did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. A call to weigh the consequences. Why are these words, why are these instructions given for the benefit of the hearers? Why? Because the people are called to remember that every covenant that God nails down, that God establishes, and is established even in the cutting of animals, the shedding of blood with the people is a serious document of the relational terms between the sovereign, the suzerain, if you will, and the vassal, the greater king and the lesser king. And the greater king takes his terms of relationship with his lesser uh, servants extremely seriously as kings in the Near East at this time were wont to do. That is to say that each covenant was ratified and invariably it would be attended by sanctions, that is, punishments for disobedience, blessings for obedience, and punishments for disobedience. And among the punishments that Asaph in this psalm reminds the voice of God, uh, channeling, as it were, the voice of God to the people are the following, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. This also probably sounds familiar to you, this judgment of the people being given over to a hardness, sometimes referred to in theological terms as a judicial hardening, as the punishment of God upon an obstinate people sometimes comes in the form of their ability to listen being gone. Their lack of ability to even hear and care about the word of God anymore is the worst among the worst of God's sanctions, God's judgments. It says in Romans 1.24, Perhaps a verse familiar to you. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Verse 25. Same reason as, uh, as Asaph writes in Psalm 81. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's a line to a song that I remember, it stuck with me because it poetically illustrated this concept we're describing here. The song detailed sinfulness, 
You know, typical sins you might find in our culture today, perhaps an adulterous affair or a perverse sexual identity that's pursued in contradistinction, contrary to the word of God. And as the song progressed, it got to the chorus and it hit this ominous note. He reaps his harvest as his heart grows hard. No man is going to make a mockery of God. He reaps his harvest as his heart grows hard. No man's going to make a mockery of God. We live in a people, among a people, in a nation who have experienced, in my judgment, to some degree, a judicial hardening of heart. And people celebrate their lawlessness and their perversion wide open in culture anymore. It seems that the thin, even veneer of shamefulness is gone in American society. And things that used to embarrass us in public forums, now we celebrate with pride. What is this indicative of? Well, worldly man, the godless and rebellious want to say, see, I'm sinning the way you think, and I'm getting away with it. Obergefell passed, the Supreme Court affirmed the legitimacy of so-called homosexual marriage, and hello, no fire struck from heaven, I'm still alive, enjoying my profligate rice style, doing anything I want, rewriting my own commandments, living lawlessly, nothing's happened to me. Something has happened. Something has happened in American culture. Something far more serious something far more devastating than feeling the guilt and shame we ought to when we indulge sin. And that devastating sanction, punishment for sin, that has come across like a dark cloud overshadowing our culture is a hardness of heart. A wanton indulgence of sin without the sense of guilt and shame anymore. This is a dangerous place to be. Pharaoh had a hard heart. The Lord, in part, made his heart hard. We read this in Romans 9. God accomplished great wonders through hardening that man's heart. God will do the same in America. But if he hardens the heart of this nation collectively, the great wonders he does might well be the destruction of this society that deserves it so. Is there a voice that can cut through the hardness of the heart? Well, as the Lord sovereignly intends, there is one. And it is the clarion call, trumpet blast of the inarguable, infallible, unchanging, immutable word of the Lord. May his church not compromise on truth. It is the only trumpet blast that will shout a signal through the stupor of judicial hardening. And God will use it at times of his choosing, to wake up a culture dead in their sin to the reality of their sinfulness. Pray that the Lord raises up gospel heralds. Pray that the trumpet of his word is blasted once again from the pulpits of this land. Though maybe only a few are in attendance, God has a way of taking the unlikely voice and making it known. After all, who could have guessed when Asaph wrote his words that thousands of years later they would ring true in the ears of saints in 2018? Fifthly and finally this morning, the God of Jacob calls to his people, behold my promises. Behold my promises. The God of Jacob has called his people to worship He has called them to recount their deliverance, to obey his law, 
to weigh the consequences of the covenant. And finally, he calls them, behold, my promises. Verses 13 and following. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. Verse 16, but he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Note first in verse 13, the persistency of heaven's voice pleading, the God of Jacob mercifully calling again and again to his people. Hear, O my people, verse 8, while I admonish you, I admonish you. If you would but listen to me, he continues. Verse 11, again, the lament, the plea from heaven echoes. But my people did not listen to my voice. Verse 13, again, this reprisal. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. In his long suffering, in his steadfast love, in his kindness, the God of Jacob calls to his people, calls forth to dead souls, arise, be resurrected with newness of life, sparking faith and regeneration in the hearts of the lost even this day, dead in their trespasses and sins. And he does so through the proclamation of his word over and over. His repeated call throughout history is gathering for himself a remnant. Oh, the mercy and grace of our Lord to bear with the hardness like Pharaoh's heart of this wicked world, these many millennia, these centuries, the Lord continues to call from the pages of scripture and through his gospel herald, hear, O oh my people, hear while I admonish you. Pay attention to my law, to my word. Take it seriously. Let it measure the state of your soul. And when you find yourself falling short of my glory, bow before the mercy seat upon which now is shed the blood of Christ your Savior and plead for forgiveness by Calvary's, by Calvary's means alone. This is the persistent pleading that's repeated throughout Psalm 81 as a picture of the persistent pleading from the Lord through history, even calling out today in our time a remnant to praise his holy name to join Asaph and the saints of old in the call to worship, to sing aloud to God our strength. Now among these promises that he calls with and calls us to behold are twofold. First, that our enemies are subdued. And secondly, honey from the rock. Subdued enemies, verse 14, a promise. Hear my call. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. What does this phrase mean? Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. Well, there was a time when in the hearing of the surrounding people of Israel, if the God of the Israelites, if Yahweh's name was even whispered among them, it would send goosebumps across their arms, tingles up their spine, the hair would raise on the back of their neck. Why? They would cringe at the very mention of the name of the God of the Israelites because his exploits had been recounted in their ears. And every time they tried to attack God's people, though his people were woefully ill-equipped with the technology necessary to defend themselves, God himself fought for his people 
turned his enemies against themselves, collapsed the walls of Jericho, slew their giants with a single stone, and over again proved that it was heaven that fought on behalf of the people of God. And when the people were faithful, this was their legacy. This was the message and the testimony that went out to the surrounding nations. So all those who hated the Lord, they cringed at the sound of the name of Yahweh. They shuddered at the reality of God's people right next door. They balked at the thought of raising up armies against them. They knew that they were subdued by the hand of the Almighty. And the promise here is God will do it again. He will do it for those that testify to him, that hear his call to worship, that recount his deliverance, that obey his law, that weigh the consequences and take it seriously. But God is jealous. He will not subdue their enemies if they will not fear him. And so the message goes forth. Remember the promise. You're struggling now, aren't you, at the waters of Meribah at this testing time? You're overrun by your neighbors, aren't you? You're afraid for your life and the future of your society, aren't you? Return to the Lord and to his word. And then the last promise is a glorious one that looks forward to the Messiah, verse 16. But he would feed you. So the enemies, your enemies would be subdued. But on the other hand, what will you receive by way of promises by the hand of the Lord? He would feed you with the finest of wheat, overflowing provision for your every need. And this last phrase, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Let us turn in closing to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. This was in part our worship text today, and it reminds us of Christ in the Psalms. Honey from the rock, what could this mean? The scriptures themselves are helpful in deciphering an answer to that question. Even as Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, all drank from the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock. Notice rock is capitalized. Moses was the first to ascribe this term to God Almighty. We read it in Deuteronomy, as I recall, 32, the rock. Moses begins to identify the rock in the wilderness from which a spring of water flowed with God's sovereign ability to provide, to save his people. But that's not all that the rock is associated with, mere thirst for the parched physically. It says, furthermore, this rock followed them and the rock was Christ. And this is again in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 10, the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. It goes on to say in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall goes on to describe that no temptation uh, has overtaken us except that which is common to man. It continues, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? 
And here we see, in fact, the honey that has sprung from the rock fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The honey that is sweetness of provision for God's people in the wilderness sprung forth out of a wasteland in the form of manna and water to sustain them and God's glory of following them and leading them into places of eternal sustenance and all the while providing, protecting them for 40 years. This was the honey that sprang from the rock. God in his sovereignty, in a place where it seemed least likely, providing for his people sweet, sufficient, and overflowing provision. There was another rock to come. In fact, this rock was the fulfillment of what was pictured of old, and it is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And from the side of Christ, from which the spear was pierced and blood and water flowed, sprung honey as it were, and from wounds in hands and feet, so flowed glorious provision for us, his people. Honey from the rock indeed. Jesus Christ in his body and his blood has satisfied means of spiritual provision for us, his people. He has ushered us in to the ultimate promised land of salvation. Let us not be like those of old who forgot their deliverance, but let us hear the call of heaven's voice pleading to worship on account of our deliverance. Oh, and let us hear his call to obey his law, to weigh the consequences and to behold our promises, all of which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us close in prayer this morning. Oh, Father, we are so thankful to see in your holy scriptures the glorious truth illustrated of our hope and stay, our Lord and Savior, our promised land, our Messiah, our prophet, priest, and king. I pray, Lord, that you would use this word today to urge us to repentance of sin, to faithfulness to your law, to consistent proclamation of your truth, and Lord, that we might give glory to your name, heeding your call to worship, and assemble with your people in the near future, even next week, draw us together again with hearts ablaze and aflame with the sweetness of your provision, because truly in Christ, we have received the ultimate honey from the rock. It's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.